0: If you're physically able, will you stand with me right now as we read God's word? This is Acts chapter 7, and we're going to go from the first verse of chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? This is after Philip, I mean, after Stephen was accused of blasphemy, and he's seized by the, by the uh, leadership, the uh, Jewish leadership. And they're making accusations against him, and they're asking him to answer these uh, accusations. And so they say, Are these things so? After they leveled several false accusations against him. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to his land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it. Not even enough to get his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and they would be, bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage I will judge, said God. And after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into into Egypt. But God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave favor and wisdom at the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And now a famine and a great trouble came over the land of Egypt, and Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt... He sent our fathers first, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob, and all his relatives to him, seventy-five people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was well pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he spoke he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were uh, fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you do this wrong to one another? But he who, did the, he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And then as this, at this saying Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of the Mount Sinai, and when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, "I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob." And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, "Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely sent, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt." I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them and now I and now come I will send to you send you to Egypt this Moses whom they rejected saying who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, and him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us this go, go before us, as for this Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship, the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim, images which you did not wor- which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed and instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land. Possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers, until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for God and for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says: "Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me?" says the Lord. "Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things?" Verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the Just One, of whom you have now become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city, and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge this them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's the word of the living God. Amen. Would you please be seated. Thank you so much for standing. The book of Acts is a transition book. The book of Acts is not a book of doctrine, it's a book of transition. It's a transition from Jesus offering the kingdom of God in the Gospels to the nation of Israel whom he came, and he is their king. They just rejected his lordship over their lives. And it's a book of transition whereby that kingdom offer now is put on hold, and now we're in a transition period where the Gospel is being opened up to Gentiles like you and I. And we're in the middle of that transition period here at the very beginning of it actually. The gospel has gone to the Jews and now it's about to be. It's about to move from there and it's about to go wide open to the entire world. You know, Jesus came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He purposely in His plan hardened their heart. But He gave them a legitimate offer of the kingdom and said, I am your king. If you'll receive me, I'll sit on the throne of David which He will one day. But until then, there is a time period where that offer ceased and a time period in which that offer is going to be received. And in the middle of it is called the church age, the age of grace, which we're in right now. And now the gospel is going out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria and Kenya and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that kingdom plan, I mean that gospel agenda, the gospel to the Gentiles, we're beneficiaries of as of right now. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. And we are beneficiaries of the gospel because we received the gospel message. But that message came about as a result of their rejection of it. And God had that planned all along. But here's what happened. We find ourselves now in the narrative here, and Stephen is brought up on accusations of blasphemy. The only way that you can accuse somebody of blasphemy is if... They're misaligning and misrepresenting and mocking and lying about God. By the way, when I was talking to those uh, Jehovah's Witnesses the other day on my doorstep, I said, let me ask you a question. If Jesus is not God, how could Paul identify himself as a former blasphemer? Just something to think about because he I used to blaspheme. He was blaspheming against the church. He was, blas- he was against Jesus. He's, I was a former blasphemer. If Jesus is not God, he couldn't have been guilty of blasphemy. Okay? And so he's trying to wipe out the church. Paul, we find Saul at the end of the narrative. We just read about that. Saul's standing there. He's the ringleader of this whole episode. Stephen is given, given an, a witness, and he's given an offer to the kingdom, to the people yet once again. And here's what happened. The question is, why did Jesus stand? That's the title of this message. I guess we'll put it on there. Why did Jesus stand? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the majesty and the wonder? What must it have been like for Stephen to stand up there in front of his accusers, false accusers? They're picking up rocks while he's speaking. This is the vision I have of it. Everything he's saying is making a matter by the minute. Every word that comes out of his mouth is like, maybe we find a bigger one. Because son, is just as soon as he gets through with this, he's done. And so every word's indicting them. Every word. See, the light, when you're walking in darkness, you can't stand the light. And so every word was indicting them. And they let him get through. God ordained that he get through. And he gives this sordid history of God's people habitually rejecting their God. He said, you know, let's go back to Moses and let's take this thing forward. In their hearts, what did they do? They turned back to Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world in Scripture. They turned back to the world. You know, Jesus didn't have their heart. The world did. And they turned back. You know, a pig will go back to wallowing in the mud if you let him. And a dog will return to his vomit, Second Peter. So that's what was going on. They were going back because they got out of Egypt, but Egypt never got out of them. And so the Bible says something that answers the question for us. I want you to hang with me for just a second because this will open up the Scriptures to you. The whole of the Bible. Hold with me for just a second. Stay with me now. We get insight into why Jesus stood at at the Father's right hand when Stephen was being martyred by looking at the end of the previous chapter. Now think of the scene. There he is. What a... Painous death it must have been to die of stoning. Can you imagine that? Somebody taking big rocks and throwing them at you and chunks of flesh are falling off your face and your legs and you're getting bruised beyond measure. And yet he looks up into heaven and I suspect all the stones still hurt, but they didn't hurt the way they would have hurt because God gave him a tremendous vision of the throne of God itself and Jesus standing in its right hand. For years, I thought, when reading this narrative, as a little child reading this narrative, all the way up to right now, in in, in, in recent years, of reading that narrative, and we talk about the fact that God was, the Son of God was standing to honor the first Christian martyr. This is the first Christian martyr right here. And here he is being martyred for his faith, and Jesus, to encourage him in the last few moments of his life while he's going through excruciating pain stands to honor the first Christian martyr that sounds reasonable or at least maybe that he's standing there to honor a believer any believer who comes into his presence when they're dead the Bible says for a believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord that's what it says hallelujah for that as this thing is soul sleep or purgatory If you're saved, you go right into His presence. If you're not, you don't. But He looks up. Or maybe it was to encourage Him and let Him know, man, hey, it's going to be alright. It's over. It's finished. You did what I told you to do. Come and enter into the glory that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But the insight that we need that answers that question, because that's a, a legitimate question, it's a good question to ponder, is found in the previous chapter in Acts chapter 6. And let's look at it. He is accused of blasphemy. they are false accusations because he's following Jesus. And remember, they're denying that Jesus is the Son of God. They're denying that Jesus is the... Rightful heir to the throne of David. They're, they're denying that he's the Messiah. They deny that he's God the Son. God incarnate. They're denying all of that. And Stephen is embracing it because he's a saved man. And by embracing it, in their mind's eye, he's blaspheming God. They bring him up on charges. And it says, in verse 15 of chapter 6, it says, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfast at his face, Saw his face as a face of an angel. They saw his face as a face of an angel. Well the reason they saw his face as a face of an angel. Is because the scriptures tell us that he was full of the Holy Spirit. So they're looking at an angelic vision there. You would think that would evoke some kind of holy fear on their part. You would think that there would be some kind of thought that says, you know what, maybe this is God working through this situation. Maybe. And God's given them evidence of the fact that He's in that moment. But Stephen was so full of the Holy Spirit that his face shone as the face of an angel. And he had been given utterance and boldness and power through the power of the Holy Spirit within him, to give a witness and testimony. And if you'll notice, everything that we just read, and the reason we went back all the way to the first of the chapter, is because everything that we just read is important to understand this. He didn't address a single one of the charges leveled against him. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't say, wait a minute now, hold on just a second. He didn't do any of that. He was so full of the Holy Spirit, so absent of him, in the flesh, you want to defend yourself. And in the Spirit, He just declared. It was a revelation, not a defense. And He goes and declares this sordid history of the people of God, the covenant people of God, the Jews, since their beginning. And it's not a pretty picture. And He gets to the end of it and He said, Here's what you've done. Every voice that God sent to you, every word that God sent to you, you rejected the word and killed the person that was appointed to give it to you. The prophets, Jesus predicted and said that's going to happen. Hey, we sent the prophets. Hey, now let's send the son to the vineyard. And maybe the son, they'll have compassion and say, hey, we won't mess with the son because this is the son. And what did they do? They seized the son and killed him. And Jesus was talking about himself. But here's the key to understanding why he stood. I want you to listen to this carefully. All Christians are All disciples are Christians, but not all Christians are disciples. All disciples are Christians, but not all Christians are disciples. Now, here's what I mean. You can affirm Him and profess Him as Lord, and He may very well be in your heart. You believe He's the Son of the living God, and you're saved. But when it comes to practical living, you have no interest in Him being Lord of your life. See, the distance between that profession and how we practice indicates, maybe not, that not necessarily doesn't mean that you're not saved. It just means that you've drawn lines and limits and said, Lord, you can mess in God with my life only to right there. It's right there. Now, If you have any idea about my career, my future, and my children, and my time, and my money, if any of that, if you pretend that you're Lord over that, I will get in church and I will say, You're Lord! And everybody will commend me for it. But when it comes down to practical living, you're right there and we go no further. We're like a spiritual house. Here's what we do. We've got a spiritual house. We've got a living room. We've got a dining room. We've got a den. We've got a bedroom, we've got all these rooms, and here's what we say. Lord, there are some rooms in this house. Now you're the title deed owner. When you got saved, who who, who, who the deed pastor? The Bible says we were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify your God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You belong to Him. Purchased. You used to belong to sin, and you were a slave to sin. Now you're a slave of God. Hallelujah. And be the slave to God is when you get free. But we say, this is my house, and here's the living room, and you can come in there. And here's the closet, and you can come in there. But these are places here where you're not welcome. Now, you own the house, Lord, but I'm still in possession of it. And you wonder why victory evades you. And you wonder why the Christian life doesn't seem to be clicking on all cylinders. Because you're asking God to do something that He will not do. He will not negotiate. He does not concede territory. If you mark Him out of your territory, He's out. And until you humble yourself, and He can do it for you, but until we humble ourselves and say, Lord, you can have the entire house It belongs to you anyway, but you can have the whole thing. Surrender is what he's calling for. Whatever's going on in your life that's causing you problems, it's not the people outside you that are causing problems. The problems are within. And God's using the circumstances outside to communicate to you problems that still exist within. See, these are these covenant people. We're the chosen people of God. Amen. We're God's chosen people. We're part of Abraham's seed. They're professing one thing, but when their Lord shows up, what do they do? What's their answer? They killed Him. Now here's the key to understanding this text. I want you to listen to me carefully. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, and you don't have to go there unless you want to, but in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have the account at the tail end of the Judges period where God put Judges... To judge his people. Now stay with me now, okay? Forget about the stew. Stay with me. When God appointed people, judges over his people, at the tail end of that, there was a prophet that was raised up and his name was Samuel. Samuel interceded for the people. Samuel is a picture of Jesus. He's a big shot. And he's interceding for the people and the people look around at the pagan nations and they go, we want a king too. Na-na-na-na-boo-boo. Everybody else has got a king. Why can't we have one? And so the Lord said, okay, you want a king? Okay, I'll give you one. And it might not be a disaster. And Samuel was so hurt. Man, you could just feel the hurt in his voice. Samuel had given his life over to serving God from the beginning because he'd been given over to God by his mother. You know what Samuel said? He said, God, I don't even want to pray for these people anymore. I'm so mad at them. And he said, son, listen to me. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Don't cease to pray for them. God's not mad at you. But God wants all of you. He won't cease to pray for you. He won't cease to intercede. He won't cease to care. But you know what? He is Lord. And His rightful place is to be Lord of our lives. And so Samuel kept ministering to God's people. And God relented and gave him a king. His name was Saul. Turned out to be a disaster, but yet God patiently endured. And here's what happened. Let's let's turn to pages of history further on. God sends His Son, Jesus, and Jesus said, He told the He told the disciples, He says, "My Father's good pleasure, little flock, to give you the kingdom." You know you're going to participate in the kingdom. He had a kingdom message. That's why when you see those those passages where they say they vie for who's going to be prominent in the kingdom, don't don't criticize them for doing that. Because He had already told them, you're going to be a part of the kingdom. Did you know that the New Jerusalem that comes down and the foundation of heaven is going to have the names of the apostles written on that foundation? And they are going to judge the twelve tribes of Israel? Do you know that they're going to serve prominently in the kingdom of our great God? Did you know that's going to happen? And He had preached that, had taught that to them. And so it was no curious thing that they would want to know who's going to be prominent. But they didn't understand one important event, and that was the cross. And so Jesus offered the kingdom. He said, I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I've come to claim that which is mine. That throne. That throne is mine. I established that throne. It is mine. And he came and he offered the kingdom to them. And what was their response? Right there. They killed him. They crucified him. That's when they rejected God the Son. They rejected God the Father in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They rejected God the Son on the cross of Calvary. And in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, who was Stephen full of? He was full of the Holy Spirit. And so he's he is given a testimony of the Holy Spirit to God's people. And Jesus is standing at the edge of heaven and he's giving them a legitimate offer that if you repent as a nation, I will come down right now and sit on the throne of David. That's why he stood. It was a legitimate offer for the kingdom. And their response to that? If you sit in a service and you're convicted, don't get mad at the person who God uses to bring the conviction. Because I'm here to tell you, the problem doesn't lie with them, it lies with you and me. They were enraged at him. and said, so we're going to take him out. And on that day, that day, God made his third and final offer to them. And they rejected it. And what happens next? <laughs> the ringleader that was standing there orchestrating the whole thing was a man named Saul. Who got saved on the Damascus road. And God changed his name to Paul. And he became the apostle to the Gentiles. And the gospel explodes to gooberheads like me. You see, it was part of God's plan. But can I say this? We're God's covenant people. And we've been marked out to serve a holy God. And our call this morning, his call where he stands at the edge of heaven, and he's looking for not only for you to call him Lord, but for you to surrender to him as Lord. And he's making a call. This passage, this narrative is not about heaven or hell to me and you this morning. It's about kingdom. Are we going to live a puny life? Are we going to live a nothing life? Are we going to live a fruitless life? Are we going to have enough of that and say, Jesus, you know what? I receive you. I receive the testimony of Your Word. Every jot and every tittle. And I lay my, down, my body down as a living sacrifice. I don't know about you, but as far as I know about sacrifices, they're supposed to be killed. But the Bible says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, By the mercies of God, offer up your body as a living sacrifice. Which is a reason to worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is—His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know why the will of God often evades us as believers? It's because we haven't yet put our yes on the table that precedes knowing it. God doesn't work like this. Give me your good, pleasing, and perfect will, and I'll consider it. This is how God works. God, I lay it down and regardless of what you say, I'll do it. Just fill in the blank. And what's the motivation? The kindness and goodness of God. See, that's, we don't spend enough time on that. The mercies of God that were expressed through the Son of God. And that's the motivation for the surrender. And when you surrender for that reason, you surrender for all the right reasons. Not to gain favor with God, but because of through His Son, you have favor with God. Now, what's it going to be this morning? What's it going to be this morning? I've got bitterness in my heart against somebody and that's my room. I'm bitter against people and how they've treated me and my family in the past. And I'm going to hold on to that and I'm going to use that as an excuse to go in deeper with God. I'm just going to do it. Now God, you can come in, you can go to the living room, it's comfortable there, I've got you a place fixed, I've got you a place in the dining room, we've got some supper for you, but don't mess with that room down the corner, because at that room down the corner, I've got some bitterness over there, and to be honest with you, I've nursed it and held it so long, I've gotten to where I like it. And I like it so much, and it's so precious to me, I can't risk giving it up, because I don't know what life would be like if I didn't have it to lean on. I've got unforgiveness because of something that happened in the past. I'm bitter. I'm angry. Or I reserve the right to call the shots in my life. In whatever area where he's trying to communicate to you, I love you so much. Let me in. Let me in. Do you trust your pain and do you trust your bondage more than you trust your Lord? How is that trust bred? How do you get to that point? And how do I get to that point where we breed that much mistrust in God that we would say that our bondage is more important to me than letting God have it and kill it? You know what it is? We don't understand our God. We don't understand His nature. And we don't understand His love. And we refuse to give Him glory. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. Can I please... I'm going to quit apologizing for this. There are, there are churches in the Ukraine and they can't sit down. They don't have chairs. And they stand there for three and a half, four or five hours and worship God with it and standing up. And here we are. Look at this place. Okay? We're going to go through the Lord's Supper. Please don't let the time distract you or anything like that. But can I say this to you? I didn't plan any of this this morning. I want to ask you this. Can I ask you this? Second Chronicles 16.9 says this. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose hearts are loyal to him. And just as surely as Jesus Christ himself was on the edge of heaven, through the call of the Holy Spirit, as it was expressed through Stephen, he was looking to and fro for a nation that would trust him. And guess what? He's looking for a man who will trust him. He's looking for a woman who will trust him. And he's looking for boys and girls who will trust him as well. He's looking for people to trust Him. He's just looking for somebody to trust Him. Not that He's desperate. or that he's, he's, he's responding in desperation. It's not for His benefit. It's for yours. And He's at the corner of heaven. Listen to me. Whatever it is it's holding you, you may think that you're holding what's holding you. But what's holding you is holding you. And you may look around at somebody else and have them to blame for that. But I'm going to tell you something right now. That's going to run razor thin that runs razor thin in, in light of biblical truth. You don't have anybody else to blame except the person who looks at you in the mirror. If you lay blame at somebody else, can I, can I assure you of this? You'll hold on to your bondage and your bondage will hold on to you and it will render you ineffective for the rest of your Christian life until you're ready to repent. and that's the truth. So we can, we can meander around in puny living and we can withhold we can we can hold back our checkbook and say, Lord, I got my checkbook now, and don't mess with that. Because after all, now you don't mess with it. Don't mess with that. Or don't mess with my time. Don't be an encroachment on my time. Don't be an encroachment on my commitments. Don't be encroachment on my future. Don't be encroachment on my children, my choices of marriage, my choices of school, and how I'm gonna be. Uh, 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 what's gonna happen to me to pursue a career and all these other things? What am I gonna do? I'm gonna put my yes on the table. And if I put my yes on the table and say, Lord, if you'll search my heart and see if there's any anxious thought or offense away in me, leave me the way everlasting. You put the moment you put that yes on the table, that's when you start getting answers. Because God's not going to dole that out to you if you're just going to give it for consideration. He's God. He's not an option. He's God.